are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Mark Ballow. Welcome to the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as usual, and today we've got special guest Michael Olivieri from the band Leatherwolf. Uh, how you doing, Michael? I'm doing great, Tom and Mark. Uh, it's awesome to be here. Well, basically what we thought we would do today is uh, take you through your whole career, uh, starting with the uh, early days of Leatherwolf and bringing it right up to your current uh, solo career. And, uh, you know, if that's cool, we would uh, we'll do that. Yeah, man, sounds groovy. Great. All right, um, Tom. I know Tom is a uh, is a real big Leatherwolf fan, and uh, and I'm going to let him kind of take the reins on this and start off with that stuff, and uh, we'll go from there. Well, Mike, what I usually do with uh, some of my real favorite bands, which Leatherwolf absolutely were, is if you could take me from how the band got together, how the band got the 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 name, uh, how the original lineup got together, and talk about the first record a little bit. Well, uh, it goes way back. Um, I was a junior in high school, and Jeff Gare was a senior in high school, and I had a guitar class. I took guitar class first and second period, and he took guitar class first and second period at South Valley High School. It was a free-for-all. It wasn't, you never really learned anything. It was just a way to just kind of get in there and screw off for the first and second period and bring your guitar and like do with whatever you do. And, uh, there was no real format or grade system. Yeah, the teacher didn't really know how to play guitar, so I don't even want to call it the guitar class. <laughs> but um, so I'm sitting there and I'm playing, I'm playing um, "Victim of Changes," and I'm going new beta beta to the intro. And I look over and across the room, and Jeff Gator is playing "Victim of Changes." And I walk over and I go, "Dude, are you playing "Victim of Changes"? I didn't even know him yet. And he goes, "Yeah." And I go, "What part do you know?" And he goes, "I know Glenn's part." And I go, "Well, I know KK's part." So we did. We just instantly, before we even met each other in the doc, we just played Victim of Changes, the intro, right? And uh, so that we hit it off and we jammed all the way through um, through high school in, in guitar class. And then when he graduated, now I'm a senior and I still had guitar class. But um, at that point, uh, Jeff was playing with Dean Roberts and Carrie Howe and some other cover band. And I came down to, uh, to watch them play at a party and Long Beach. As a matter of fact, there was a band that was playing with them. It was called Panic. And that was Davis Dane's band. And uh, the, the backstage green room was in the master bedroom of this house. And Davis Dane, you know, he left the room. He said, nobody touched this fucking guitar. It was his, his BC Rich, right? You know, it's like, it's, what do you do when somebody tells you that as soon as they leave the room? Like, you touch well, the guitar. Play it. <laughs> <laughs> so we all took turns passing around Dave's guitar and I bonded with Carrie and hey, they said, hey, man, why don't we uh, we try something new and come down to jam with us? So I went down to, I think it was Carrie's girlfriend's garage. We rehearsed in uh, Carrie's girlfriend's garage. And it was all covered back in the day. So um, me being um, a, from a musical family, I understood harmony really well, being the youngest of seven. And um, so we went in there and jammed and everything they were playing, you know, it had that, you know, it was early metal. It was, 
you know, priest and maiden and scorpions and tigers of Pantang and Sabbath and, you know, just all kinds of, you know, new wave, that new stuff that was coming out at the time for us is, uh, you know, 1981. Um, so, uh, you know, when I came in jam, there was on, on record, all these bands have a third guitar part that's overdubbed. You know, there's always that third harmony. So right. I would play that. And we just thought it was really cool that we could, you know, play this three guitar part. So, and I wasn't even the singer then. There, Jeff's brother was the singer. So there were six people in the band. So, yeah, so I joined the band. They said, hey, why don't you join the band? I said, yeah, totally cool. Um, we played millions of backyard parties, man, in Huntington Beach. Backyard parties were the thing to do. Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, every night, sometimes Sunday. So we would play like four nights in a row in just people's living rooms or their backyards and, until the cops would come and, and bust it up. So, uh, you know, we went through many singers um, at the time and – there was one backyard party we played in, in Whittier, and the singer didn't show up. And, and I would always uh, sing during rehearsals because our singer would never show up to rehearsals. Singers just didn't do that at the time, I guess. <laughs> so I would kind of just sing to get us through the, through the rehearsals, not being a singer, just kind of, you know, just trying to get us through the arrangements and stuff. So the singer didn't show up, and like, they're like, dude, you got to sing tonight. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not going to sing. So um, me and Jeff had to go to the liquor store and buy a big old bottle of Lord Calvert whiskey. And we sat behind the liquor store for about an hour and drank that whole thing until finally I was like, I can sing. I can do it. <laughs> so we went and we played. And forever since then, I was the singer. And wow. it was kind of weird, a little weird transition because I wasn't ever like vocally trained to be a singer or anything. As you can listen to those, that first album we did on the Enigma record, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know how to make a tone I, I had no clue but you know after playing all these parties backyard parties and then we got a couple of club gigs we started playing the woodstock the gazaris these are clubs in in southern california and the troubadour and you know the whiskey the roxy and all these things and we started building up a following finally we moved up to la and got a band house and started getting some label interest enigma signed us there was a label called enigma back in the early 80s we did our first ep with them Continue to play, continue to start selling out clubs. And, you know, we had a band house in Reseda and you know, everybody would come there uh, every night. There was a club called the Country Club and bands would play there all the time. And they just thought Leatherwolf would be having an after party, even if we weren't. So we always were. <laughs> so we just kind of built up this thing, you know, um, uh, just built up a huge following in L.A. Eventually um, struck interest from Island Records and they signed us. And next thing you know, we're going out to the Bahamas to make some records. Where did the the name Leather Wolf come from? Who who came up with that? I'm going to be totally honest um, because some guys like to like shade the truth, but I'm a total honest guy. I'll tell you exactly where it came from. Um, when we were practicing in Carrie's girlfriend's garage, Carrie's girlfriend's little brother they had a they had a band, but not really a band. You know, when two guys have a band, they say, "Hey, we're going to uh, have a band someday," and call it. No, they were going to call it Leather Wolf. Well, we at the time. We came, went through many names. So at the time, our name was Anvil Assault. And we spray painted on the side of Carrie's Volkswagen. And these kids, um, they came in and they were like, what does that say? Handful of salt? <laughs> and we're like, we're like, fuck you. We're taking, our, we're taking your name, Leatherwolf, then. Like, you can't do that. We played a party and the name Leatherwolf. It was packed and everybody's like, who's this band playing? Oh, it's Leatherwolf. And from then on, we never looked back. It's one of the great names of the era. It really is. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't come up with it. It's stolen. That's that's great. 
So how did the recording process of that record go? It's become a cult classic. I, I think even more so as the years passed on. Which uh, one? The, uh, the Island Records? The, the very first one. The, uh, on Enigma? Or yes. Our EP? The EP, the wolf yeah. on the cover? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, uh, uh, somebody got, came to a club, Ron Gowdy, his name was, you know, on Enigma Records, and he came in and he said, hey, you guys want to make a record? So we got signed. We did an EP, went up to Venice, recorded five tunes um, on a super tight budget. We'd never really been in a studio before. You know, we've always kind of been a cover band. We were playing originals only because, here's a funny story, we opened up for Accept at this place called the Concert Factory in Costa Mesa, California. They said, well, if you want to play, you have to be an original band. You can't have a cover band opening. So we would jam at, at, at a rehearsal sometimes just on instrumental stuff because our singer never really put lyrics down to any of the songs. You know, as I said, we had another singer. But um, So the first gig we played as a real original band, it was all instrumental. We didn't have a singer. So we just played it as an instrumental. Wow. And um, eventually I wrote lyrics to the stuff and went in and recorded it. But we didn't really know what we were doing at all, especially me as a, a singer, you know, writing melodies and, you know, where do you go? What note do you sing here? You know, it was just, it was just a total shot in the dark. Total Who came up with Kill and Kill again? I wrote the lyrics. Um, it was during the time of, I believe there was this guy named Richard Ramirez. He was called the Night Stalker. The Night Stalker, yep. Yep. And that was kind of about him. It was one of the first lyrics I wrote that in Season of the Witch. I didn't really know how to write lyrics, you know. I was like, I don't know, I don't know what to do. You know, so we're just, I guess every second and fourth line supposed to rhyme. <laughs> Start with that. But, you know, that, if you listen to that, it does sound like a record where uh, the vocals are secondary because it's, even the verses sound like guitar solos. You right. Know? So that's because when we first started writing those songs, we were just writing instrumentals. So we didn't really know how to structure, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Like, well, that's a cool riff. Let's put that there. So we were totally um, green about the whole arrangement, how it goes down, you know. We just looked at our um, influences. Well, how did Maiden and Priest and those guys do it? Well, what, what I noticed also is when you signed to the major label, the jump up in the course of, I guess, roughly two years was was enormous. Like, you, you by that album, you had... Your signature sound, where on the first album you could see, you know, you it was very rough, and but by the the next album you had that identifiable quote unquote leather wolf sound. How did ha, what what transpired in that period of time? Well, I think um, because okay, I guess I'm the singer now, so I started, you know, take took some lessons. Elizabeth Sabine, um, we took our writing more seriously. When we got signed with Island Records, they put us on. Well, they didn't put us on. They, we got a, a nice advance, but we put ourselves on a, a salary. So we didn't, you know, we didn't take that money and go buy something. We put ourselves on a, um, a modest salary so we could all spend all day writing and, you know, just trying to uh, perfect that. So um, it was, you know, we would, it was like being in the army, you know, it was eight to 10 hours a day, you know, six days a week. If you didn't show up, it was like, where are you? <laughs> My mom's in the hospital. Well, I don't care. Get over here. It was kind of just real it was a family but it was also you know like i said we at that time we had the band house so we were um we spent all day and all night just writing and rehearsing and just uh seeing what we could come up with um we had the songs when island signed us those songs were pretty much mostly written on with the exception of a few so um you know kevin beamish came in and kind of polished us up and took the stuff to another level or um 
I wouldn't call it mainstream, but he did polish it up and help us craft a cohesive album together. So, something about the first re- a lot of the record, it was dynamically, it was it was a pretty far spectrum from lows to highs. So I think that's what you know Street Ready also did. So we had that uh, we weren't afraid to step out of just trying to be a, a you know hardcore thrash metal band. We had Kevin Beamish produce both those albums. Yeah, Ireland, right? he did, and he really he you know he really emphasized the, the harmonies. And, you know, made us made us a vocal band, even though we never were. So it was it was interesting. Some of the standout tracks on that that I always thought were you know Rise or Fall, The Calling, Gypsies and Thieves. Uh, they, that to me, like that was like you guys had a an identity. You know the the, the videos, the sound. I, I remember back in the day when I first heard this record, it was it really grabbed you because you still had the heaviness, but the songs were real catchy. Also, I, I felt like the band had um, had its identity. Uh, yeah, um, we didn't feel like we had one, but we were trying. You know, because we always like we were like what, are, what you know. Because we would look at other bands and go, wow, they're very um, focused or direction, you know, mm. because, you know, at Street Ready, you have Take a Chance and Lonely Road on the same record. You know, I don't think we ever really, uh, until we got later in our career, like into the New World Asylum, we're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. But, you know, back in the day, we didn't really have that. Okay, here's what kind of record we're going to make. We just wrote songs and, you know, whatever we came up with is what came up on the record. We didn't have this, okay, here's what we're going to sound like. You know, in the Street Ready and the the Calling record, we never had that kind of direction. Or had we done another record after Street Ready, which we were supposed to, I think we would have really found ourselves. But along came 1989 and 1990. As you guys know, things changed quite drastically. Sure. Well, let me ask you about Street Ready. Do you feel on that album that you had arrived as a band? I felt like we were getting like a little more focused on what we're about, what we could do. you know, because we loved we loved the melodic sense. We never, you know, but we also had that um, aggressive three guitar part. We always wanted to keep the, uh, you know, the polyphonic guitar playing. Where um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff. It was very interesting to listen to as I listened back to our stuff. Um, I was like, wow, that's that's pretty cool how we did that that thing there. But um, we, uh, I think, on Street Ready, we started to um, find our niche. Oh, I think yeah, you was, definitely found your niche on that record. There's not a there's not a weak song on the whole record, in my in my opinion. Oh, thanks. Thank you. It's fun to make. Definitely fun to make. Because the first time we went to the Bahamas, we'd never really been in a real studio before. Although we did, you know, the the first Love Wolf record, that was, uh, it was a real studio, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like you're there for two months every day recording. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of um, uh, work ethic where it's like, okay, here we go again. So for two months, you're just, you're recording all day. You're in the Bahamas. You don't have friends, family. You're, so that was, that was huge. So we went, we, we did both records in the Bahamas. We went the second time. We really knew what to expect, what to do, um, our surroundings. We knew what to focus on. You know, we knew what amps, what sounded good. We knew how to record well. Um, we, we felt that like we had a formula. So it was a lot uh, smoother the second time around. We started... Um, not questioning Kevin Beamish, but uh, the first time around, we kind of, uh, you know, put all the control in his hands. Like, okay, you know what you're doing. But second time around, we didn't want we didn't want the choruses to be as eponymous. We wanted to be more uh, real, and we loved harmonies and everything. But you know, it was kind of weird. 
kind of keep it real a little more, you know, as you know, street ready is not as produced as maybe the other one. It's definitely, it's, it's, I thought it was a heavier record and I, a little bit more roarer than, than the predecessor. Well, that's where the term street ready came from. Right. I, I just want to take it through a, a short trip through time. I saw you guys at the cat club in 1989 in New York City. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> I don't expect you to remember that because you oh, were on man. tour. I can remember that like it was yesterday. Really? You can? Okay. So, because, and, 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 and I, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass because my, my partner is here and he's heard me say this a thousand times. Out of all the hundreds of bands that I saw in the 80s, and I, I grew up 10 minutes away from Lemoore's in Brooklyn, I thought that was the best show I ever saw a, a band of that era do. And the wow, thing that blew me away was I knew you played guitar, but I never saw the band live. So I thought you played guitar like singers usually play guitar. Like strumming acoustic? Right. And then what <laughs> you did, like, I, I remember the show like it was, not like it was 32 years ago, like it was two years ago. I did a couple of songs, just you singing, and then you strapped on the guitar and I was floored. And I remember telling my friends the next day, like, holy shit, the fucking guitar player is as good as the two guitar players in the band. And it, well, it, it knocked me for a loop to this day. Well, um, thank you. I'm not quite as good as Jeff and Kerry, although um, I started out to be because we were all three guitar players and we all had our own thing and I was just a guitar player. But when I moved over to being a singer, I have to say, like, um, not my guitar playing, like, got worse, but they just kept getting better. And you know what I mean? Because I started concentrating more as a singer and I wouldn't play... Yeah, I wouldn't play all the time uh, because we saved the three guitar for like solos or powerful rhythms or when Jeff and Carrie would break into a duel, I could still carry a rhythm underneath so that the guitar didn't drop out, you know. So um, uh, I appreciate you saying that. I'm a better guitar player today than I was back then, not in a different way, but um, Jeff and Carrie were by far, in my opinion, one of the greatest duos of that whole 80s era i i thought so too i thought i they, got to watch him i got to watch him practice every night yeah i i, I agree i in fact I, incredible, I, incredible. I saw two bands at the cat club that were both california bands vicious rumors who we recently did a, a program on and and leather wolf and i thought that the tandem of the two guitar players and leather wolf and vicious rumors were the best of of that era no bullshit yeah you know it comes from uh, sitting on Jeff's couch in his living room all day, me and us three just just playing. Okay, so because we would do these these solos, like it was like, okay, here's your solo, and here's your solo, and here's your solo. So we would have this, and then we'd have to go, okay, now we have to do a triple. So we'd have to all the three play together, which wasn't really done much at the time outside of country music and southern rock. Yes, yeah, Skinner, yeah, right. But um, I feel you know I'm I'm pretty proud of what we did. I listened back and like, wow, uh, you know, I listened back to a lot of stuff that happened there and, you know, not just saying, I'm humbly saying <laughs> that we definitely did have a thing. We definitely had a, a, a niche where we didn't sound like, you know, any of the other bands um, that were out at the time. I can't really say like, oh, we sound like this or like that. I mean, somebody, some people would ask like, who do you sound like? I'm like, no, well, that's that's what you want. Like? No, no, absolutely not. No, no, that's why I said you maybe developed. made in a little bit, you know, but no, yeah, you had a signature sound, which is I, 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 I think as you know, three decades after the fact of all those bands in that era, 
there were really only, you know, maybe 15 or 20 bands that had a signature sound, and you guys were one of them. It's You really couldn't say you sounded like any of the traditional bands from the 70s. You did develop a sound that was your own. Which yeah. Uh, it, it came to our... I don't know if it was a plus or a negative when it came to um, a record label knowing what to do with us or MTV, where do you play us, or the radio, or even today, um, you know, Hair Nation, they don't play us anymore. No. You know, or or, or um, any of those, you know, um, XM satellite radio stations. We don't really get the airplay as we used to. I think it's because we didn't fall into that category. Right. We weren't LA Guns. We weren't Poison. We weren't right. Warren. We weren't... Exactly. We weren't um, we weren't Y&T, we weren't Rat, you know, we weren't Motley Crue, we weren't, we weren't even Metallica, you know, so we fell somewhere in the cracks um, of <laughs> oblivion, I guess you would say. <laughs> what, what would you guys consider yourselves? I mean, you talk about, like, th- those bands obviously didn't sound like any of them, but would you guys say you were, you know, street metal or, or power metal, or uh, what did you consider we called ourselves savage metal at the time. <laughs> I mean, it like there wasn't even a term, you know, but I, I, I gotta be honest. I, I don't, we didn't try to be anybody or we didn't say, let's try to sound more like Queensryche or let's, let's try to be more metallic or let's be more guns and roses. We just, we all really, really, really kept it real as, as we could. Uh, so, you know, later on, as we did into the 2000s and we did that new world asylum record um then we kind of like okay let's be a let's be a heavy band let's mm-hmm. do it this that's the first time we said okay what are we going to do okay let's go make a heavy really heavy record um so that's that's the only time really that we have any kind of like set out to be okay let's be this yeah because before it was just like let's let's write and see what happens and record that Right. Now, um, we all know what happened. You said it a few minutes ago about how the music industry changed in the early 90s. You know, the band went away at that point after 1992. Uh, We're going to touch on something with a band uh, named Hail Mary. Uh, But before we get to that, the band was not around for, I guess, the better part of the 90s. And then in 1999, you put out the live album. Yeah. um, Well, 89 came. We did Street Ready. we did the street ready record. We were up for our third option at Island records. Our management um, convinced us to step out of that contract and go get this deal with MCA. And they were going to offer us way more. They knew it exactly what to do with us. They were going to break us, blah, blah, blah. We were going to be this, they were going to do that. Um, so as we step out and we step out of our option from Island, which was insane because they were going to give us a bunch of money for that third record. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as we step out, we start writing, and we're we're writing new songs for the um, for the next record. We already knew the title, and, and ironically enough, Iron Maiden came up. But I couldn't believe it. After I was like, how did they know this? Because our our record was called No Prayer for the Dying. So, and this was way long after. Somewhere in like I think it was about two thousand, we sat down with to lunch with uh, Bruce Dickinson. He wanted to sign us to a sanctuary label, um, but he said he always liked what he, we did with the three guitars. And, but that never panned out. Anyway, um, I'm getting off track. But basically, the Hail Mary thing. So at, at that time, we're writing. Um, well, all of a sudden, this band Nirvana comes out, and MCA says, we're going to hold off on all signings right now. We changed up. And we were like, okay, 80s metal's dead. Let's um, let's put away the pointy guitars. Let's play some more bluesy, leisure kind of rock stuff. And we changed it up. And we were actually going to be Hail Mary. Or we're gonna we were gonna be Leatherwolf, but we were having some issues 
with um, some of the band members. So we decided to let's just totally change it up and change the name and get a couple new members. And we found a really great guy, Marco Forconi and Pat Guyton, and we changed the name to Hell Mary. And we started doing demos with Epic. Well, Epic strung us along for like a year. The, uh, they never closed on a deal. And I just felt like Hail Mary was getting a little too, I wouldn't say punk for me, but, you know, because they're all my bros and I was having fun playing the shows. But I was, at the time, I, I looked back and I was re, I was re, um, getting back into my roots, like listening to Beatles records and Lenny Kravitz just came out. And I'm like, wow, listen to what he's doing. Well, this is really, because I've always been a soulful guy, I play piano, Rhodes, you know, a lot of organic instruments. You know, the early 70s stuff has always been a huge influence on me. So I just, you know, at that time, like, I'm going to step out and I'm going to do something different. I got kind of tired of chasing that record deal and spending eight nights a week at practice and being in the army. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just just met a girl, just got married, and I was like, you know, do something different. You have to look back at the time. and Everything was changing and nobody knew. The whole, all the rules were changing. The game was changing. Right. You know? Almost like it is now. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, exactly. You know, everything's changed again. Keeps, uh, you know, the rules change, the game changes, and the business what, what, changed. Re- the whole business yeah, changed. What remains true is, I don't. I just like I never did in the day. I I never played music to be a rock star. I don't want to be famous. I don't need to be on a cover of magazine. I just love making records, and that's why I still make them today. And that's why I loved doing the Hail Mary thing. We had, you know, they put all these uh, songs together because we recorded like nine or 10 songs in the studio back in the day. So uh, we dug those up, remastered them. And so that's coming out. That's pretty exciting. I've been waiting for that to come out a long time because I've, there's I've, some good stuff on there. Yeah, there really, there really like, is. Wow, I mean, I've heard things. most of it through uh, Steven and Ryan. From, and that guitar playing, that Jeff and Carrie dynamic is still there. Yeah, it, it absolutely. We is. didn't do much of, as much of the triple act stuff. We weren't as progressive. Uh, we were kind of more mainstream hard rock, um, but it was a lot of fun, man. It was that was a really good time. We would we were the shit back in the day. We would have party buses going to uh, wherever we were playing, Whiskey Roxy, uh, Troubadour Country Club, um, you know all these clubs. But it got to the point we would have five different party buses leaving from five different high schools in orange county so you know you're on 75 people on a bus with two kegs and all of a sudden before <laughs> show time like five buses pull up and all these drunken rockers get off and they're like and the poor opening bands because nobody was there and all of a sudden it's like <laughs> and all these people come in no, it it's real. Just, it's it real ass kicking stuff. It kind of reminds me. I mean, see, see if uh, this is just from the songs I've heard. Reminds me a little bit of like the second Skid Row album. It's got like, yeah. a, okay. I'm glad you agree. Like, <laughs> it's very angsty. There's a lot of angst. Um, we were, you know, there's a lot of pissed offness. We were, right. we were a little pissed off, you know, because right. like we felt like I wouldn't say we got gypped or, or short end of the stick because we did more than most. You know, most of like you know, we know hundreds and hundreds of local bands that. You know, never got a record deal or never went to Europe to tour or never, you know, so I'm totally blessed and lucky and fortunate for everything we did. But there was a sense of it was cut short. I felt like, God, man, we, oh, we were right there, you know, so we had that, you know, the, the rug keep getting pulled out from under us. And so we had that little bit of pissed off angst going on, you know. How did that not come out? Was it a was it a finished product that uh, that was? I'm gonna. That's totally my bad. I quit the band um, in like 1992. I, I I just felt like it was getting a little. 
because what you heard was really cool but then then the, that never came out so the new songs that were getting written um were even more um angst and punk and i was mm. like ah, you know i think i really want to sit down on the roads right now <laughs> you know yeah, you're starting to lose the vibe of the whole thing yeah like you know because i always had this real soulful um vibe to me and i just felt like i didn't fit anymore in that you know those guys were all you know riding harleys everywhere i'm, I'm following them around in my toyota celica mm -hmm. <laughs> i get it <laughs> you know they're all getting tattoos i don't even still today this day have a tattoo right um i just didn't want to fake it you know what i mean i just wanted to be real at the time i just wanted to um you know, if I'm going to struggle, I want to you know, do something I really want to do. So I put the mob together and I started, you know, playing with really great guys and musicians and started to be in some other bands and play some other kinds of music and just uh, become a musician again, as opposed to being in the Leather Wolf Army. So how did you get dragged into New World Asylum? Because I know it was cut with Wade Black originally. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we did a reunion thing for jennifer perry she was our old manager she was uh, ozzy's assistant worked with sharon and uh, so she did a birthday party at the troubadour and asked us to play and we did this was like 10 years later so this is probably 1997 98 something like that and we played and it felt good to play again they was like hey why don't we do a show so we did a show at the galaxy theater here and then we said oh why don't we just record it so then we did that wide open live record mm -hmm. okay so that created a little bit of um a thing again so we're like okay you know so uh we got some shows we toured around and it's like okay hey, let's make a record we started to have a little falling out some you know um people came and went all the original guys weren't there but i i you know i said okay i'm gonna i'm focusing on my stuff and uh it's all good just still friends with the, all the guys at this point um i don't I think Kerry was involved, but Dean kind of kept the kept the reins going. But I, I was always friends. Me and Dean would hang out. We'd talk on the phone. And Wade came in the band, and I welcomed. And I go, yeah, go, just go get a singer. Get somebody who can really do the metal thing. You guys want to make a metal record? Get a real metal singer. You know, because I can I can do what I did in Leatherwolf, but I don't call. I wouldn't consider myself a metal singer by any stretch of the imagination. So I said, yo, go get something. And Wade, they got Wade. And I came down and. It was recorded at Dean's, and I was there with Wade, and I did some backups, and um, just kind of not coached Wade, but because uh, he's a great singer, but just kind of helped out with the harmonies, you know, where to put a harmony, because you know he he didn't have, I don't think as musical as a, a bandwidth as I did, as far as like adding you know, melodic structure to a really heavy record that was just, you know. Anyway, he did the record, and then they had a European tour. They had a falling out, Wade quit, and Dean said, hey, man, we got this tour in Europe. Want to go do it? And I'm like, I don't want to sing his tunes. Let's like record <laughs> the vocals and we'll call it New World Asylum. Then right. I'll do it. Okay, that makes sense. Maybe a, maybe a dick move by me. I don't know. But I felt like if I'm going to be invested and I got to, you know. No, I mean, I was happy with it because it made me feel like it. Wade Black is a guy that's been in a lot of different projects, and I, I, I do respect him as a singer. He, he fronted Crimson Glory for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when he's been in Seven Witches and and a lot of stuff. Yeah. But you know, I, to me, it was a journey, a journeyman singer. And when the album got re-released with your vocals, it was actually when I bought it for the first time and regained my interest in the band. Well, I didn't mean to step on his toes because Wade's a great guy and we're still friends with these, to this day. I, it, 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 for me, I mean, like, I know it's never been done before. We want to do that. But I was like, 
what could it hurt because i felt like nobody really heard the record i don't feel like it ever got you know any so i just i just felt like hey if i'm gonna go out and tour on this thing let's can i put my vocal on it so but the one thing that wade did for me because i had to like at least do what he did you know so it would he tore my voice up man <laughs> putting making that record that, well, he could do that. Uh, now he's a really talented singer. I mean, he's not, not, he really is. Absolutely. He is. He did a great job. I mean, he, the guy had a really tough job of replacing Midnight and Crimson Glory and you in, in Leatherwolf, and he's he's always pulled it off. So yep. um, it's it's nothing against him. It's just with you being back in the fold, it, it added a lot of credibility to what was known as Leatherwolf. Well, that's, you know, um, I'm not going to call it a problem, but that's the issue that I think the band is facing to this day is, you know, there's really nobody in it except uh, one original member. Dean is the only one left. Yeah. So, um, wish him the best. I wish to carry on the legacy and keep the name going. Well, you know, we, me and my partner, Mark, we always talk about this that with wine. And we just did a, a recent, uh, interview with vicious rumors where we were talking about, you know, when Carl Albert was killed, uh, in the car accident, how it, kind of disturbed what was vicious rumors and i've always maintained in certain bands there's, there's a dividing line of how many members you could replace and then you lose that certain guy or two and it's not that band anymore it just isn't and unless it unless it redefines itself unless it redefines itself. itself right right unless you go yeah. in a totally different and direction this, and blood wolf has that definite possibility i mean luke luke is in the band luke man he was he did the last uh couple tours with us with right blood wolf. he did the german he's a phenomenal young super nice great guitar player rob math um another great guitar player oh and, rob and is he, yeah the singer is an amazing singer and I've, i haven't heard the record yet but i'm uh, you know i'm rooting for it I, I am too, and it's you know I'm I'm not trying to be a downer on you know not that many. Yeah, me neither. I, you know, I'm a super positive guy. Um, I wish totally wish them well, wish the name well, and it's all good. Who it it just takes a lot though t at a certain point to replace that many original members, and, and I hope these guys could pull it off. Uh, I, again, you know, like I'm I'm rooting for them, not against them, but I'm just I'm really talking in general. It it takes a lot when you start to lose. The guitar players, the singer, you know, it's it's really tough to... Well, to at that point, I mean, yeah, because you, the name is attached to um, to familiarity and uh, the people in it and the legacy involved. So at some point, um, you know, if, if the songs are different and the sound is different and the people are different, shouldn't the name be different? Well, that's the age-old question. Some point yeah, just be called uh, something else. We could have an entire episode on this because that's what I say <laughs> all the time too. You know, I mean, we see things oh, all the time where you know, there's the drummer is the original guy left. There's a totally different singer, all new guitar players, different song structures, but that same name is still there. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Dean bless bless his heart, man. He's a super talented guy, but he's. He's never been in another band besides Leatherwolf. I know. So, uh, you know, that's his baby. I mean, I, I get let, it. Let, let him go, dude. Go get it. No, man. no. And I have the, make you it, know, he's rock. a tremendous um, drummer. And at some yeah, point. Absolutely. It's, this is one project in, in terms of a band. I, because I like Rob Matt so much. Uh, you know, I got on board with him at the beginning of Leatherwolf. And yeah. with, like we spoke about today, this afternoon, he's he's with Peter Beckett. And, um, yeah. He's a guy that definitely could be a replacement for one of the original guitar Oh, my players. God. Rob is great. I, do you know who Bjorn England is? Yes. 
So I was I did the record with uh, Solsheim Bjorn's Bjorn's record, and um, we had a Swedish uh, Sweden tour. It was like seven shows, and uh, we already did the record, and we we're going out and doing these shows in Sweden. And like a week before, the guitar player bailed out, and he was like, "Oh man, we don't have a guitar player. I don't know." And, and and he goes, wait, I, I know this guy. I just met this guy randomly. I think he could pull it off. I'm like, dude, it's like next week in Sweden. I'm like, really? Who is this guy? He goes, can you make it out to um, Tarzana tomorrow for a rehearsal? I'm like, yeah. The next night, he knew all the tunes. Really? And he was like shredding. I'm like, dude. Yeah, no, he's that. tremendous. Wow. He really he is. A he's a monster. And he just he played a couple covers, and he did some just phenomenal stuff i'm like dude you're amazing yeah so when motherwolf needed a guitar player i i told dean i was like dude i got the guy oh without a doubt yeah. and he's got the sound the leather wolf sound down to a t and he never makes a mistake yeah he's i believe it's a rock he's no solid i know as a rock. i know it's consistent as all consistent just just a phenomenal guy and what Super i love nice. what a guy like that too is he's playing that music and he's out with peter beckett doing player music which goes to show you you know it's so great. Yeah. I went and saw him. He played at the um, this Huntington Beach library. It was a few years back. And I went and saw them, this library, because I'm from Huntington Beach, and it was the library I grew up in. And they have this little amphitheater inside the library. Uh, so Player was playing, and Rob's playing, and like Huntington Beach, I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? You're killing me. So I want and saw him play. And he, you know, like, dude, turn up. I can't hear you at all. It's like, what? You know, he did a couple of things here and there. I'm like, oh, my God, he's just... Rob's being wasted right now. It's uh, like his talent's being wasted. And all of a sudden, like it came on chord right for the last song. Like, Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Math. And like Rob goes, <laughs> like, and it's like, okay, thank you. Good night. <sighs> encore, encore. That's great. It's funny because I saw a video on YouTube. Of, you know, we were get we were preparing for the the Peter Beckett player uh, show that we were doing, and I saw this this show, and the guitar player looked really familiar. And, and then I I spoke to my, my partner Mark here, and I said it looks like the guy in Leatherwolf, Rob, <laughs> Rob Mant. And then we did some research, and it was him. So when we had Beckett on. He, I mentioned Rob Mant to him, and he was like, oh, yeah. He goes, he plays in a band called Leatherwolf. I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to move on to your solo career and your solo albums now. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll kind of talk to you about that, Michael. Um, tell us basically about how you started your solo career. How, and Because it's so different than what people might expect from your Leatherwolf days. So tell us about that, how that all started. Well. Um, first of all, to call it a career is thank you, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, basically, uh, song, you know, it's a glorified hobby, you know, um, like I said, I, I don't set out to be a rock star or on the cover of any magazine or super famous, but I love making music and I love writing songs. So I continue to do that and I've pieced together, um, some amazing musicians over the years. Um, my first solo album came out in 2010. It was called Goodbye Rain. That was the first time I played multiple instruments and got to go into a studio and just really experiment with, you know, who I am, what I do, and these so, different songs. So that was basically something that you just did. It was a true solo album, not really a band yet. Yeah, true solo album. Um, had a couple of different drummers come in, Dave Good. Marco Forconi, who was in Hail Mary, did some drums on there, actually produced it and mixed it. Phenomenal guy. Marco is 
has a studio out in Monta Montana, Whitefish, and it's in the in the woods, and he's just got it going on. So I've been out there a few times to record, but you know he did the first one, and uh, so that went really well for me. And uh, came time to do something else, and had all these tunes to record, and I just got the, the best musicians I could find uh, that I knew, friends from Orange County. There's uh, seven of us. Um, K.K. Martin, Buzzy James, and uh, Paul Wilson, Eric Von Harrison, harmonica player guy. So it's when I made like this uh, rootsy country rock kind of record, and that was that was a lot of fun. We did a lot of cool videos and played some really cool shows, and got to be on stage and do other things besides being the singer for Leather Wolf, which was really fun. And uh, just recently, last year, I did another solo record called Love Is Contagious. Ironically enough, we had a sold-out show. And then COVID came along and uh, ruined our Love is Contagious show. <laughs> so <laughs> we, never, uh, we never got to, to do that gig. But um, now that the band is reformed and we're back in the studio working on the next record right now, so that's what I'm up to in these days, just focusing on the next batch and getting out and playing. Now, are you the primary songwriter in that, or has it become sort of a band thing since you've got everybody I'm else involved? I'm still kind of the only songwriter, really. I mean, everybody else kind of writes, but uh, I kind of bring everything into the to our sessions, pretty much charted out and done. And it changes along the way as as I hear what they're doing and things shift and mold. But yeah, basically, I'm kind of doing all the songwriting. Yeah. Now, what was the in 2015? What was the Here and Now EP? Was that a solo thing or was that an uh, MOB thing? Yeah, you know that was that was it's a funny story because that came out. Um, I went on the uh, the Monsters of Rock cruise in that year. I forget what year that was. Maybe 17 or something like that. Well, my wife, super awesome woman. Um, so I was doing the uh, piano bars. I was going to do a piano set in the lounge when I was on the cruise. Mm -hmm. So not only doing the Leatherwolf stuff, but then I had this other thing going on in the lounges, which turned into more of a comedy show, <laughs> me playing piano and telling jokes, probably talked more than I did <laughs> play <laughs> songs. But, um, so she was like, Oh, wow, you need, you need to have like a, a CD. So she like, we went in the studio with, the, um, I just played piano. We had a cello with a player and a violin and we just cut that live in about three hours. Oh, wow. Just to kind of have something on my piano. It was just an EP just to leave laying around. Nothing that ever got like um, I tried to do anything with or promote it or anything. It was just kind of a, just a mark in time, basically, you know? Yeah. Now, well, tell me a little bit about, you, you mentioned a few of the members. Tell us who is in the, the Michael Olivieri band or, or MOB. Oh, uh, the same guys that did the last uh, record, uh, Buzzy James, amazing guitar player. Um, uh, Tom Crucier, who's Juan's brother. Ty Dennis. As a drummer, and two backup vocals, uh, Trish, Burke, Manzer, and Don Waldman. Pretty simple, pretty simple uh, formula, but it works. I don't know if you've heard the last record, Love is Contagious. No, I, I heard a little bit. I mean, some songs, I, I've caught a couple of videos on YouTube. Um, so yeah, just it, it's good stuff, you know, and uh, it's definitely rootsy, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, who are some of your influences that, who were you influenced from early on? Early on in, in this, in my genre here, uh, God, yeah. you know, anything from, you know, when I grew up, you know, like I said, I was the youngest of seven uh, in a musical family. So 
grew up listening to everything from, you know, the Doobie Brothers, Eagles, Doors, you know, singer-songwriters of the 70s, you know, even some of the 50s stuff with my older sister. So I've been influenced from music for a very long time. And the stuff that would always stick with me was the, the soulful stuff or the melodic stuff or something that made me feel something, you know. And uh, So it was always those, um, it, you know, comes back to the anything with a vibe, anything with some passion in it, you you know, it could be even hard rock. You know, you can kind of see through people that go through the uh, the motions and real real songs that take you on a journey and move and do something, make you feel something. You know, even to this day, um, my influences are all over the place. Some of the new bands that are coming out, um, there's, there's some really good stuff going on. Even stuff that's not even rock, you know. You know, um, it's interesting to see a band like Silk Sonic come out and like people playing instruments and singing tunes, you know, in that genre where it's like becoming so uh, mechanical. Like, would it be too awesome. too much of a stretch to say that you might have been a little in- influenced by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young on some songs? No, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know the ultimate jams that happened in uh, at the Whiskey. Yes. You heard of them? Yeah. Um, uh, the mob did one uh, right before COVID. It's one of the last ones. Uh, we, it, they did a Woodstock night, and we did uh, the mob did Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, and it was really cool. Got all nice. the four part harmonies and all the all the parts. Yeah, nice. super good, super huge influence. I'm a I'm a child of the '70s, so I I could relate to that. That too, man. The '70s are great. <laughs> and you know what? I find the older I get, the more I'm going back to all of that music that I maybe had kind of left behind for through the 80s and the 90s. God, it was so good and so organic and it, yeah, fresh. It, and absolutely. Different and everything. Everybody sounded different. Everybody had Everybody sound. sounded. That was the most amazing thing about the 70s because it all came under the genre of rock, but it was all so different. And all of these bands were arena racks. It was, yeah. you know, like everything from Pink Floyd to Jethro Tull to Crosby Stills to Johnny Wint to Allman Brothers. It was all different music. Sticks, Kansas. Sticks. But, but it was all the same fans, though. We all, everybody, there was a, such a crossover and none of the music was, none of it even re- no, remotely nobody was sounded the same. like each other. Everybody right. had their vibe. Right. There wasn't a thousand Guns and Roses. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. no, what the 80s turned in. Right. That, it, it really did. Yeah. yeah. Interesting how uh, every decade kind of sounds like a decade. It's really hard to come up with something new and fresh these days. Yeah. Well, there's some bands doing it, like you said. I mean, I know Tom and I, we've been listening to some bands like Dirty Honey. Um, yeah. you know, so stuff like that. There's some new stuff coming out there that, you know. And most of it's organic. Native Sons is another band that we we like. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's bands that I find that are going back to that free, bad company, you know, that, that more stripped yeah. down. Yeah. A lot of that Rival Sons. Um, right. Greta Van Fleet. Greta Van Fleet, yeah, which I, I saw them a few years ago in New York. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, it's. I see that the bands that I like are, are more stri- stripped down '70s sounding. That's my, that's my vibe right there. That's my. Yeah, era. me too. Me too. That's. I mean, a lot of great stuff came out of the '80s too. I mean, that's. You know, don't get me wrong. I mean, that's when I, you know, really found myself as a musician. You know, in the early '80s of all those, all those records in '81 that came out. There's the list is on and on of all the great records that came out in '81, '82. Oh yeah, eighty-one and eighty-two were the two biggest years. I, I always say Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast, was the biggest game-changing album 
That's for sure. Yeah. I, I and, and I mean, I go back, you know, I go back to late 60s. Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast was, for that decade, changed the game completely. That was the deal. Yeah, us too. Out here on the West Coast, we were doing the same thing. We were rocking to the same thing. That's right. Now, so you mentioned uh, a little bit ago that obviously the last couple of years has been a watch for everybody. What What is currently happening with uh, the band? With uh, with the mob? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we, we're getting together once a week, twice a week. Um, uh, in pre-production, we're going to go in the studio at the end of March, February and start cutting tracks and start doing some shows in the summer. Okay. And with a new record coming out. Where can uh, where can everybody check this stuff out? Uh, you have a web page or website or socials? Yeah, I knew that was coming up. Um, this, uh, something happened in my website. So the guy who was hosting my website um, kind of disappeared. I'm in a transition on the website. It was it's michaelolivieri.net, but unfortunately for the last few days it's down. So uh, there's always you know all my videos are on YouTube. I'm on you know the app, all the streaming networks, Apple and Spotify. Pretty much find the music anywhere. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, plug them on our site for sure. Uh, well, Michael, uh, we really appreciate this conversation tonight. Uh, Tom, I and myself, we had a great time. We hope you did too. And, hey, uh, Tom and Mark, great, man. Thanks for having me Thanks, on Mike. Your show. It was a pleasure. I've uh, wanted to talk to you for years, and I finally had the opportunity to. No, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad to talk to you, and uh, hopefully talk in the future, and uh, who knows what the future holds. Maybe we'll be out in New York soon, or you great. might be out in the West Coast area. Look me up. That's right. Okay. Love we'll beer. Definitely. Will do. Thank you very much, Michael. All right, gentlemen. Take care. Good night, Mike. Good night. Good night. Think of you when I close my eyes. The starry image seems to hypnotize. My vision lies. I know your game. Without your love.